0: Welcome to Pavantus, a world of tumult and misery, antiquated belief and scarce technology, fading crystals, battling warlords, supernatural beings, and general despair. Two of this world's gods now lie dead, Balbarel, the Lady of Shields, and Laramie, the fiendish Lord of Swords, both killed by the Angel of Inevitability, Iramil, patron deity of the Almerian Empire. It is a world divided, literally, Continents sink, seas rise, and new barriers are created in the destruction. In this world, ancient crystal tech will soon be bought and sold only by the rich and powerful. Gone will be the days when enough naturally powered crystals could be harvested to meet the needs of the rich and poor alike. Those crystals mined prior to the shattering still thrum with power and will be jealously hoarded, as miners and scavengers discover that untapped crystal geodes have become dull, lifeless, and mundane. The nations of Pavantus will seek to maintain their lands and in influence, but the destruction wreaked when the crystal engines ceased will have far-reaching effects. Monarchs and emperors will find their spheres of influence collapsing, rebellion and banditry will become rampant, and new settlements will spring up over all of Shattered Pavantus as refugees seek solace, safety, and community. The sleepy province of Arkelvie, formerly known as the Kingdom of Everlyn, has seen more destruction than most. The Sapphire Sea, the large body of water that separated Arklvi province from Almar province, has breached its former boundaries, drowning the cities of Merida, Graham, and Ketabir. In the northwest corner of Arklvi province, under the massive shadow of Mount Tabor, sits the small city of Tabori. Relatively unscathed, it will be a bastion for those lucky enough to have found themselves there during the destruction. The city of Arklvi in the east escapes the violent upheavals wrought upon Vavantis with the shutdown of the Crystal Engine as well. But the bandage of the ancients has been ripped off, the wound that threatens all of Pavantus once again exposed and gangrenous. This is where we find ourselves in the clear, cold sky above this cataclysm as it erupts. On an as yet unnamed ancient airship, five figures, Broken Band, Moshe's Oar, Throneless King, Blossoming Storm, and Scholar, look down upon the destruction they've awoken by their impossible choice. What have we done? How many lives have been lost? Did we make the right choice? What possible future could there be on this wounded planet? These heroes, or is it villains, gaze down on Pavantus, unsure what to do with what time may be left to them. Welcome back to the 12-Sided Guys. We have Matt playing Pine. Hi. Scott playing... Roos? Yeah, that's me again. Jordan playing Ebby. Salutations. Sabrina playing Nari. Hey there. And me, Paul, playing with the hearts and emotions of a multitude of people, all for my own enjoyment and amusement. You're a monster. Well, we're glad you're back as we start the next part of our story that we're calling Disc 2. I know our players are stoked and so am I. If you're stoked as well, fan that fire by becoming a patron, leaving a rating and a review, or even just telling a friend to check us out. And thank you to everyone that's done one or more of those already. We love you guys most of all, almost as much as we love our newest patron, Kevin. Kevin, we love you. Anyway, if, like me, you remember being weirded out by disc two of Xenogears, then this podcast is for you. It's the Crystal Codex, episode 53. As the crystal bandage deep beneath Pavantus loses power and the crystals themselves are pulverized to dust, parts of the continental shelf drop suddenly and abruptly. The ground shakes as earthquakes tear apart the landscape, volcanoes erupt in the glass and wolfjaw mountains, and tidal waves and tsunamis devastate coastlines. Many coastal cities are swallowed up by the rising seas, or is it the sinking landmasses? The island nation of Barrister is split into three separate islands, while the imperial province of Liren is split even more. As the waters rush in, the Sapphire Sea swells and devours much of Arkilvy province as well as the northeast part of the Almar province. The Isthmus, connecting the province of Calinium to the rest of the Almarian Empire, sinks. The provinces of Fayhurst and Thistle become massive islands as well, as riverbeds sink and seawater rushes in to fill the landscape. pavontus is a world changed, but some areas have fared better than others. The coastline of the, of the Almar province remains relatively unchanged and the Wywold Islands seem to have escaped more or less unscathed. Regardless, the entire world is reeling from the shock and devastation brought about by the use of the crystal engine failsafe. So in the initial aftermath, we have Nari and the boys, as well as Colbury on this airship. So first off, why don't you guys tell me a little bit about this airship? Okay, so this is an ancient airship. The materials would have need, needed to have lasted for thousands of years because uh, it's been sitting dormant. So... Um, the, the hull of this airship, rather than being like long planks, is actually made up of like two foot by two foot square uh, boards um, that are kind of put together, almost looking like fish scales from a distance. And through the center of each one of those boards, there is a yellow crystal, kind of like the yellow crystal we have on the Crystal Codex book that preserves it and keeps it from deteriorating over time. So the hull of this ship from a distance looks like almost like the scales of fish with a glint of yellow in the middle of each of those scales. It's about what we, I think we said about 40 feet long. And then, so um, I think the, we described the the current airships, which would be probably based on a model similar to this one, because this is the ancient technology that the Empire found. Um, you said that the, the current ones almost have like a football shaped balloon that holds them aloft. Um, this ancient one actually has a, a sphere uh, shaped balloon. So completely round. Um, and then instead of having like metal props, this one, it actually has metal rods that come out and spin but they're wrapped in canvas. So it almost looks like a pinwheel. And that's those are the propellers that that push it through the sky. Um, and it has a little bit of that canvas coming off the back too. So it's almost like as it's spinning, you have this spinning trail of canvas, um, in the wind, like almost like a, uh, rhythmic gymnastics ribbon trailing behind it. So here in the initial aftermath, uh, what are Nari and the boys doing?
1: Well, Nari is obviously super worried about her family and community, um, so I imagine as they're kind of coming out of the mountain in this airship and she's seeing all this death and destruction, um, she's also feeling incredibly guilty. So I think that for the initial aftermath of everything, her goal is really to unite all of the survivors of the mountain clans. It doesn't matter if they're tall hearts or Stormfists. fists, um, she's going to try to get everybody together and keep them as relatively safe as, as can be.
0: Yeah, I think, and then I think we, we would use the airship to help us um, kind of gather up people who may be um, separated or in need because their, their villages, their homes have been ruined by earthquakes and mudslides and things. I think that the, the storm fist summer home is probably at ground zero being directly over the crystal engine. So probably head there first to try to um, help any survivors, any refugees
1: yeah I imagined that there would be a lot of death in the summer home. Um I would think that most of the most of the elders did not make it uh, yeah i i think I think there was a lot of death there. and so I think that when we're going around in our our ship, we're probably gonna have to pick up a lot of the other people from other clans, basically.
0: Um, as you uh, land at Summer Home, it's actually more intact than you expected initially. Um, but yes, there was um, buildings collapsing, uh, rock slides, that kind of thing. Um, when you get to Summer Home, you go into some of the buildings to help rescue people. And when you get into the Hall of Foretelling, which is Maeve's home, the, the soothsayer who would tattoo um, the prophecies and the um, the kind of rites of passage upon people, as well as on Garam, her living canvas, this man that she would tattoo uh, for decades. She was tattooing on him. You find Maeve lying on the ground next to Garam. Both have passed away um, from the death and destruction. And as you are looking, you see that Maeve still has her needle in her hand, and she was in the process of tattooing when everything. Collapsed. When I first described Garam, I described all these tattoos all over him, and there was one spot in between his shoulder blades that was still bare, waiting for a tattoo. Yeah. And as you look at Garam's back, you see this tattoo still bloody from being done, still very, very fresh on this body that will never actually heal and make the tattoo permanent like the other tattoos. You see a symbol, and the symbol is a hand, palm open. And a wing on either side, which you would recognize as the symbol of Iremiel, the angel of unity or the angel of inevitability, whichever way you decide to describe him. So her very last tattoo was a prophecy about what was to come. More like what was to came. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you mentioned landing. Uh, I wanted to quickly say it, it doesn't land on the ground and it, it can only like land in water. Um, or it can tether off to like the towers we saw in Arkelby, the city. Um, mm-hmm. So we would probably have to let ourselves down via some kind of a dumbwaiter rope pulley system. Right. Anything else happen here in the initial aftermath? I think we would look for Yastin. We would look for Hermine. We would look for yeah. any of Nari's surviving family and try to, try to take them with us um, as we found a place that was secure for us to kind of uh, have as a a base of operations, um, an emergency meeting area. Yeah. As you guys are in summer home, you do manage to find um, Yostin. He does look like he took a bit of a beating, but he is okay. Um, You see that one of the prongs on one of his antlers has been broken off, but he still has, both antlers, just one of them is you know a four point instead of a five point or whatever the case so may be. His rack's a little lopsided. <laughs> not like not like <laughs> one's an innie, one's an outie. <laughs> not like the blacksmith at um Woodbridge. Not that bad. He has was missing the whole um one whole antler. Um but you can see that yes, yasin did take a beating. Um and you do see also Hermine is there and she um she has survived as well. Um, she looks shaken and rattled Um, but, um, Abby upon seeing you, um, she immediately gravitates towards you, uh, some kind of a, uh, kind of a bond, some kind of a, uh, a feeling of unity with you, um, just kind of brings her to you. And you notice that Yastin and Hermine have kind of uh, built a little bit of relationship. It's only been like two days that they've known each other. Uh, but they, um, they seem to uh, get along well as well. Pine will also basically dismiss uh, Crumbles and say, I'm sorry, boy, but we're going to be needing the, the space on this airship for, for the injured and for those we're taking out. And I know that you'll be okay. I'll call when I need you. There's a bugle of the, uh, the uh, Elaton as it um, heads off into the forests down heads south in the valley. Um, Sabrina, why don't you tell me there was some death and destruction. Um, what about your family? What's going on with Nari's family? Uh,
1: so both of Nari's parents did not make it, um, which was especially hard for her because she never got to make amends with her mother. Uh, I do think while we're flying around in the airship, uh, we will be able to rescue Tikris, who was in the hunting grounds, and he was far enough away that he managed to make it. Um, to Tsar... Also made it, but he is severely injured. He will never walk again. Um, and and pretty much almost didn't make it.
0: Wow! Well, did Adressa make it?
1: Uh, Adressa did make it. Yes, she was she was relatively okay.
0: All right. Year one. In the first few weeks and months following the shattering of Pavantis, civil unrest, famine, disease, and death run amok. In areas now cut off from previous allies, warlords begin taking control of towns and cities. Survivors flock to them in hopes of food, safety, and a return to some semblance of order. Skirmishes erupt as former neighbors become bitter enemies vying for control of scarce resources. By the end of my cell, Fantasy March, a mere 4 months after the crystal engine was disabled, the Almerian Empire loses complete control of all of its provinces save the Almar province itself. The spring, summer, and autumn are not as fruitful as before both from the Shock to Pavantus as well as constant threat from neighbors and the skirmishes that flare up suddenly and fiercely. But as winter settles over Pavantus, the colder air seems to cool the hostilities somewhat and many areas benefit from a relative peace as this first year, post-shattering, draws to a close. So, we are now in the first year following the shattering of Pavantus. You guys get to tell me what each of your characters does during this year. After everything that's happened, we all have loved ones and responsibilities elsewhere. Um, so I think it would, uh, we've all kind of decided that we would potentially split up to take care of of things on our own. Um, so we won't necessarily be together um, for some of these. We are going to roll initiative.
1: Nari rolled a 10. Pine
0: rolled a 13. Roos got a one. And Ebby rolled a seven. Are you guys adding your modifiers?
1: Oh, yeah, I don't <laughs> oh, know. Oh, my I'm initiative modifier?
0: Okay, I rolled a <laughs> nine then. Gotcha. <laughs> so are we go so we're going Nari Pine Abby Joff. Okay, Nari. What does your first year look like?
1: So Nari spends her first year up in the mountains um pretty much just trying to rebuild what was lost. Uh, after we kind of gather up all of the people the mountain clans who are willing to come um, rebuild a community with with each other. Nari will spend her time building the houses and trying to kind of create a little bit of a structured society. Um, I, through that year, her brother Tikris will kind of begin to take a lead uh, and will sort of become a little bit of the de facto leader uh, as well as we will also get another soothsayer who ends up kind of going through the process of being uh, anointed to that so, things are kind of starting to be not not at all normal um and there's definitely tension between the different clans, but they're all focused on building a safe place uh so at this point, there's a tentative peace between everyone
0: yeah, I imagine it's it's a little different now. You've got these tall, broad storm fists, all like over seven feet tall, then you have these tall, thin soft paws who not necessarily a lot of them, but some of them do come to, you know, form this community, uh, tall and thin with pointed ears. And you have these, you know, more, uh, more common size, like six foot tall, tall hearts with their large antlers. You know, you have the gray bears, the long claws, and you have the, uh, copper beards. So you have these different groups with all these different like idiosyncrasies and these different cultures, uh, coming together, trying to make something that will work because yeah the mountain clans they did take a beating um but you, you figure that Tikris is kind of uh stepping forward that's pretty awesome. I think that Yostin will also uh step forward, not necessarily as a leader, but maybe to help uh advise Tikris. So like maybe there's a council from like each member of the clan and he'd be that representative from the Talhearts? Yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think that, 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 that sounds good. Um, and also uh, Delon shows up late in the year as well. Delon, the, the tall softpaw who was in uh, Fallen Heaven, uh, running around with Kira and uh, uh, Brinby and uh, Hebo uh, way back in uh, chapters one and two. Um, she actually shows up late in the year and, uh, and helps you as well, Nari.
1: Oh, that's good. I was hoping she would show up.
0: Yeah. Um, Pine. What does Pine do uh, with this year one? Okay, so Pine and Ebby actually their goals align um, enough that they actually they will um, take possession of the airship, uh, and they're going to head toward like the Almar Province. Pine made a promise to Ebby that when it was time, that when he went to free his people, that Pine would be right there with them. And while they're looking for deacons, and again, going to Al- the Almar province makes sense because that's where most of them were, that's where they were, you know, working as um, uh, labor in their society. Um, but Pine will also be looking around, asking around about his oldest daughter, Sanya, and his middle child, Tamra Jr., who we met before. Who he's assuming came back here after the death of the adjudicator Alric? Any luck finding his children? No, he doesn't find he doesn't find them. Okay. Um, and Ebby, um, what's Ebby? I mean, I, I know Ebby and is with Pine. Um, how does how how well does this go as you guys are trying to free Ormex?
2: Yeah. So, um, Hermine and Ebby and Pine are kind of you know toiling away at this, and they actually see pretty good um, success because of all the tumult and turmoil that's happening throughout the region, especially in the old imperial regions that are seeing really strong collapse and infighting. Um, it makes it easier to liberate uh, even just a few every single week potentially, you know like one or two servants from this household and then you know maybe a group of four or five or maybe a caravan where they're being transported. We just kind of engage in these guerrilla tactics and start liberating them, and start amassing a pretty decent size group. Um, I would imagine at the end of year one, the group is well over a hundred strong, maybe even approaching close to two hundred of liberated Ormex. Um, But these are in being liberated. Many of these Ormex. They're not soldiers. They may have been like war-plated deacons from the empire, but the people that chose to take on these tasks and become Ormex, these were scientists. These were philosophers. These were engineers. Um, they were not generally warriors or generals. There are some that are ta- like uh, strategic or or tacticians, um, but that's about it. And so they're very much just a, a people, like a robot people, mm-hmm. and they're just kind of looking for a place to, to land. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's the state of affairs for year one for, for Abby. Are
1: Thanks. you like rounding them up and keeping them in the airship or are they just kind of dispersing?
2: So while we're operating in Almar, um, the way that I've kind of thought of this, and certainly Pine can Chime in as well, but uh, basically we'd we'd have some sort of like a, a base of operations, probably hidden in the forest somewhere, and we basically set up kind of an impromptu camp. Uh, but it is tenuous. There's enough disruption that nearing the end of year one, uh, the main goal for Ebby and her Hermine is going to be finding a place that they can call home, some place that's actually going to be safe for this growing group of. What we call the free peoples of Allele.
0: I think what another cool thing too is that since they don't need to sleep, they don't need to eat. Um, they 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 can actually live. They, we we can establish this camp in a much more hostile environment, um, making it potentially uh, less likely for passing patrols to come try to find these you know basically escaped slaves. Yep. I think as we were freeing them too, we met some people who were, um, absolutely. Horrified that the, the servants that they thought were just these robot helpers were actual people trapped in these, in these bodies that just, they couldn't, they had no autonomy. And so there were some people who were willing, like as soon as they found out, they, they were apologetic and they, they actually offered to help. So they may have given some of their, their material, um, possessions that they still had to help these people that they feel they'd wronged. But there's much more who now feel cheated who who are refusing to see these as these um Ormex as people um and so there is very much a, a dichotomy there among the people how they react to the awakening of these Ormex okay awesome and what's roos
3: doing in this year this first year so the, so the first year um pretty quickly after everyone was um you know, assessing the damage in the Glass Mountains, Roose uh, asked Mister Pine and Evie to give him a ride back to Taveri. He wanted to check on his mom, and so the first the first part of the year, he went and made sure that she was safe, and found that she was um, still living in a a very decimated city of Taveri after the earthquakes and and uh, you know shifting of of the whole world, basically but she, um, she was alive and safe. And a few months after he arrived and he's helping rebuild in Tabri, his sister Kira also shows up. And very quickly, Kira begins pressuring Joff, who has now decided to go back to using the name Roos, because he doesn't feel the need to hide who he is anymore, because the world ended in his view. He doesn't think that Howling Talon will be after him at, at this point. In fact, he doesn't even know if Howling Talon even exists anymore. And so he he goes back to being Rus, and his sister Kira is constantly encouraging him to try and reestablish the the Bayard throne. And after a while, she convinces him, and the two of them start working towards establishing a semblance of order in Tabri. Awesome. Year two.
0: By the beginning of the second year, post-shattering 2PS, the citizens of Imperial Almar have had enough. The province is unofficially split into different city-states, each ruled over by this or that imperial dignitary. By Ankali fantasy April. The imperial palace in Almar is sacked, save one inaccessible suite of rooms. And Emperor Gantanius is dragged out into the street and hanged, ending the reign of the emperors. In some areas of the world, small towns and cities begin to band back together, including the former Arkelvie province where Tabury, Destin, and the environs form a new kingdom, one led by someone very familiar. The former magister of Tabury, a white-haired military woman named Vonette, flees Tabury and takes control of the city of Wayfield, calling it Imperial Wayfield, and sets up a government very reminiscent of the Almerian Empire. There she sits, keeping the peace and waiting for the return of the Imperial line to once again take hold of the Arkhalvi province. Further east, the cities of Crossroads and Terran's Hill unite and form a union called Terran's Protectorate. And in the city of Arkhalvi, Governor Tenor, a man once poisoned by Nari and the boys, seizes control of the city and calls it the Kingdom of Arkhalvi, naming himself its king, by Nintali, Fantasy November, in the western part of the former empire, the entire province of Colinium renames itself the Theocracy of Menarest and unites together under its previous motto, anthem, and banner. Far to the southwest of Tavery, in the hilly region at the southern tip of the Glass Mountains, sits a small farm. A creek swollen by mountain runoff feeds a nearby pond where cranes wade and freshly shorn sheep drink. The scene is tranquil but remote. Only one small farmhouse, a modest barn, and a few simple outbuildings can be seen for miles. The area was cleared in a meadow surrounded by forest, so no one was likely to stumble across this place unless they knew it was there. Two wagons approach the small farm, one loaded with goods for trade, the other mostly empty, ready to take the farm's fresh wool and sell it to textile manufacturers in one of the cities. Accompanying the wagons is Pine, riding crumbles. This must be it, Pine says nervously as he dismounts. The door opens and a small girl, four years old, bursts out excitedly. From inside a woman's voice calls, come back here, it's not safe to just run out to strangers the girl's mother hurries to the door, an infant swaddled in her arms, her hair pulling loose from a tight bun. She's relieved when she recognizes the trader's caravan. You're earlier this year, she shouts to them. We were expecting more delays like last year. The world's still turned on its head, but people need clothes and want money, so at least trade is getting back on its feet, replies the woman in the lead wagon. Besides, this man was very eager to get here, started us early every morning, and wouldn't let us camp until we'd crossed just one more rise. She motions to Pine, who has dismounted from Crumbles, but stands with his hand on his saddle, unsure how to approach. A man calls out from the barn. Who's that then? As he exits the shaded interior, Pine sees his youngest son for the first time in years. Leon is not as tall as Pine, but broader. He looks to be in his mid-thirties. As for his physical looks, Leon takes after his mother's side. His skin is more pink than pines, his face heart-shaped, his nose shorter, and rather than the caracal ears of his father, Leon's resemble more closely those of a lynx, complete with mutton chop sideburns that frame his face. "'Dad?' Leon shouts, running as he recognizes his father. The two clasp hands and squeeze shoulders at this unexpected reunion as Leon introduces his young family. "'This is my Alice, my wife. I wrote you about her, remember?' "'Yes, I remember.' is all Pine is able to choke out as his eyes fill with tears. This is Vince, Leon says as he gently squeezes the baby's chubby leg that's kicked free from its blanket. And this, continues Leon, bending to pick up the young girl, is Petal. As Pine hears the name of his late wife, he can no longer hold in his sobs. Seeing this, Leon pulls him in and embraces his father. Some weeks later, Pine sits on the shores of the small pond as Petal listens to his story. And as we made our way out of the dark, scary catacombs, Ebby cast a powerful spell, calling on the spirits of the trees and flowers to grow, so huge, like, pshhh, and fill the hallway. Our pursuers were kept trapped below while we escaped into the city's gardens. Whoa, flowers did that? asks Petal. Of course they did, responds Pine. With the help of Ebby, of course. He has a special connection to Moshe, the lord of nature. Wow! And this, continues Pine, as he produces one perfect skipping rock from his pocket, is a stone I found on our way out. Pine hands the stone to Petal. Now, she asks. Go ahead, says Pine. Petal does her best sidearm throw, and the stone flies from her hand in a high arc, landing with a single plunk in the pond about five feet away. That was great, my little blossom. Good throw. And you know, since you've touched that place and learned the story... That memory is ours now, not just mine. The sound of pounding hooves rapidly approaching draws Pine's attention away. Come with me, stay close, Pine says as he rises stiffly, leaning heavily on his cane. As Pine approaches the farmhouse, he sees five riders looming over Leon, rough-looking ones on horses, a mule, and a riding goat. We don't have anything you'd want, Leon's telling the group. He's holding a short spade, probably doing some planting in the kitchen garden. We sold our wool earlier this season, and the first harvest won't be for another month. We'll take some mutton, then, snarls the rider in the front, and maybe some other flesh, he says, looking toward the house where Alice can be seen holding baby Vince. His posse snickers behind him. Leave now, and you can keep your lives, Pine shouts, quickly closing the distance to the bandits as he brandishes his cane like a sword. What's all this, then? laughs a short, stocky bandit as he dismounts his goat. The others casually follow suit, drawing knives, clubs, and hatchets. Unleash with precision! Swordmaster's fury! Leon shouts as he strikes the nearest bandit with the flat of his spade three times, lightning quick, hitting his weapon arm, his belly, and his cheek before the ruffian collapses to the ground. Pine joins the fray and drags a lanky bandit with rotten teeth off his feet with the crook of his cane before delivering a swift thrust to the temple. Father and son make short work of the bandits, incapacitating each in turn. Let me show you something we did in the wild south of Tabury when we were set upon by an imperial search party, Pine says as he begins binding the bandits' arms and legs with their own belts and harnesses. With Leon's help, they load each one onto their own beast. Crumbles here, boy, Pine calls, until his aelaton emerges from the trees. I'll send these ones on their way, and when I return, we will review your forms. Dad, I'm not a child anymore, protests Leon. You don't need to run me through more drills. Didn't you see what I just did? I did, replied Pine with a stern look. Sloppy. Swordmaster's fury? It was a sword amateur's disdain at best. Then with a wry smile, Pine says, But don't worry, I'll stay. We'll practice until you're back in fighting form. You'll teach me as well, Alice calls, approaching the cluster of bound bandits, carrying a broken axe handle. Good, Pine says, looking proudly at his youngest son, his courageous daughter-in-law, and their two beautiful children. Good. I'll ride these ones out several miles and send them out scattering in different directions. When I return, we'll begin. Do you remember Frigid Retribution Stance?
1: Awesome!
0: That was great. I loved it. That was
1: really great.
0: Thank you. Great. So Pine found his youngest son and is going to spend the next year with them. Yeah. That's great. I think Pine deserves it. Spending time getting to be a grandpa, making sure that they can protect themselves. Because like we said, banditry is running amok and uh, uh, just enjoying some time in, in peace. All right. The other three of you roll initiative.
1: Nari rolled a 17. And that's a Sabrina, actually, I guess, not Nari.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I got an eight. And Ebi got a 16. Uh, well, Nari, why don't you go ahead and tell us what you're doing in year two.
1: Okay, so in year two, uh, Nari, well, like the end of year one, beginning of year two, Nari is going to leave the mountains. Um, She's going to leave Tichorus in charge, and she is going to make her way down to V and really try to dive in on this inevitability and the angel of unity and really try to figure out what is going on and kind of how she can fix this mistake. Or at least do what she can to to not make things worse. Um, so when she gets to Arkel V, she's going to use her connections with Nilla, um, who is still around with Sir Bortimus, and basically just kind of try to reconnect her information networks. Um, kind of pulling from her connections with the Fallen row or with the uh, Fallen Heaven and the Rose Syndicate, um, she'll kind of create. Not so much a secret society, but more of, as opposed to a criminal society, more of a arcane history, um, kind of study to try to really learn what's going on. And I think she'll also recruit a couple librarians of Cadriel in that journey as well.
0: <laughs> I think that they'd be more than interested to help out in that. Um, I think um, you know, as you're talking about Nilla and Bordemus, I think uh, with the creation of the Kingdom of Arkelvie, um I think that Nilla specifically might still have a little bit of like a uh tendency to want to fight against that. Um so um do you think that she would um put all her efforts into yours, or do you think she'd kind of split and probably continue to kind of try to bring down governor tenor or king tenor now?
1: I don't think she would have enough support to really do that. I think most people are kind of a little bit I mean, who really cares if he wants to call himself king? Like Pine was saying, bandits are running amok. Like you can kind of make your own way right now with how crazy the world is. Um, so I think I think the focus I think I would be able to convince her that the focus is more important to fix what we've what I've kind of done.
0: <laughs> nice. OK, Uh, Abby, what is year two look like for for you? Yeah. Um. So kind of just a quick update.
2: For for Abby on this one, so uh, Hermine and Ebby basically caravan the group of liberated uh, Ormex, the free peoples of Alil, and Ebby leads them to a safe place, um, somewhere not far from Tabery, but up in the mountains a little bit, um, some place that they've been to before, but that he wants to try to keep as secret as possible. Um, the sad reality is that because they have limited martial ability, they're still a very kind of susceptible people. They they're f- relatively defenseless, and so they need to be basically in hiding as much as possible as they start to rebuild. Um, and while they while they're they are rebuilding, they have all this time. And given the fact that most of them are. Scholars and scientists and engineers, etc., they begin to, to fall into studies. They try to understand what happened with the crystal engine. What's the state of the world as it currently stands, and you know what could they do to help heal the world? Um, before the end of year two, uh, kind of nearing the end of summer, Ebby himself ends up leaving and leaving alone, and uh, um, to go off on his own, kind of mission or quest, which, uh, for year three, when we get to year three, I have a vignette, which will kind of outline what happens around those events.
0: Nice. Yeah. I imagine some of the Ormex that you rescued were basically lottery winners, you know, like, um, intellectuals and, um, other, um, you know, pillars of society, but not necessarily, um, the, the architects of the crystal engine, but you did manage to free a couple who actually had some input into the crystal engine and they are trying to um kind of uh work through the problems and figure out what's what what happened why did the crystals kept proliferating when they were supposed to stop yes um, yeah yep. awesome very cool and so ebby still had the airship correct i mean pine would have left the airship with ebby oh um yeah
2: i guess i had thought Eb- uh, pine was going to take the airship with him yeah no ebby can yeah basically what ebby would do then is probably hide the airship because he won't need it so he would probably stash it in a cave and keep it as like an exit plan in case okay. the the Ormex get attacked.
0: And did you name the airship?
2: I suppose we all maybe gave it an, a name. We were thinking of naming it the Allele Eagle,
0: mostly because it's hard hard to say. <laughs> illegal. <laughs> illegal, illegal, <laughs> illegal, illegal. Uh, nice, That's like Bob Loblaw's Loblog. Yep. Uh, <laughs> uh,
3: uh. <laughs> all right, and then uh Roos. What's Roos doing in this lo- in this year too? So year two was fairly eventful for Rus, Um, continuing on basically with what he had started um, with his sister Kira. He, uh, they joined forces with the remaining cell of Fallen Heaven that she was working with. And they eventually, you know, through a lot of effort, repelling bandits and, you know, politicizing against other people that would that wanted to take over the city they establish the city state of Tabori and Rus becomes the king of this small city state. He never really feels good about the decision. He doesn't ever feel like King was what he ever wanted to be. And he's, he just feels unsettled, but he goes into it and he and his sister work together to start establishing order Protecting the farmers, you know, from bandits and doing whatever they can to, to establish peace in this small corner of the world that they have influence over. And that's basically what they do for the full year. It, it was good. They, you know, his sister was successful in everything that she wanted, but it was nothing that Roos wanted for himself. He, throughout the course of this year, he's very troubled by the events that shattered the world. And he he just doesn't know what to do with himself after it all. And so during this time, he, um, in uh, conjunction with Colbury, the two of them start working on a book chronicling the events of the party through disc one. And going from the notes that Colbury had taken with the things that Roos recalled from their travels, um, they write the book or a history of what happened to shatter the world. But they do, Roos changes everyone's names and does not offer any backgrounds or um, stories to identify any of them. But he does state um you know what roles they played, just not who they were. Right.
0: That's awesome. Does he still go by Colbury? Colbury still goes by Colbury. Yeah. Colbury huh. still he you know, Colbury has lived as Colbury for years and um he still goes by Colbry.
3: Okay. Doesn't trust me enough yet to to tell me his real name? Um actually well we'll say that he does tell you his real name. But um, Not
1: everybody wants to change your name every other day, Joff <laughs> Yeah,
3: Joff <laughs> No, hey, hey, that I, <laughs> we should just start calling you Juice. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Oh no. Oh, oh yes. gosh.
0: That's awesome. Uh, uh, that's great. Yep. As Year 3 PS commences, other former provinces of the Almerian Empire begin to call themselves by their previous names, including the Principality of Dathan, the Lyrin Province, Rakolia, the Almar Province, Ostella, Fahurst Province, and Ustrania, the Old Thistle Province. This creates some semblance of order and government throughout the now defunct Almerian Empire, but many of these returning nations are in name only as warlords vie for power in Dathan and Rakolia. Eventually, an unsteady peace is formed in Rakolia as city-states form a sort of confederacy with the senate situated in the city of Alamar. Each city-state governs and rules the miles and leagues around it, but there is still much of the former Almar province's rural and remote areas with no leadership whatsoever. The Principality of Dathan has a less peaceful compromise. The new crown prince surreptitiously assassinates and murders his rivals, taking control by force. But by the end of Jekdal, Fantasy July... The principality is under control and stable. The people of the Glass Mountains have regrouped and consolidated, but due to the unsteady nature of the highest peaks, the Stormfist clan leaves Summerhome in the month of Ormenbar, or fantasy October, for the last time, abandoning it to the wrath of the mountains. Hey, it's time.
2: Ebby's vision returned to him as he lay on his back, staring up through the dappled sunshine streaming through the forest canopy. The light felt warm on his metal, and a gentle breeze danced through the lush forest canopy. This can't be right. It was snowing just a moment ago. Ebby sat up quickly, sending dirt and leaves scattering and drifting down from where they had rested on his prone body. He looked around him but saw only lush forest and undergrowth, a few insects busying themselves and a curious little fox observing him from the shade of a bush. Ebby racked his mind to recall what had happened and how he had gotten to this place. Last I recall, it was late winter, and a bit—a bitter wind had brought snow from the north, from the tundra and the sea of ice and storm. Clarity dawned on Ebby as he thought further. That's right, I should be an old Ladrithel. I came this direction in search of Lord Moshe, heading north past Valkinar. Cracking crystals, how long have I been wandering? Ebi considered the timing. He left Hermine and his people in the early fall, when the mountain leaves were just barely painted by Artarian's touch. Life in the Kilava, which in Alil means home or nest, had been simple and fulfilling. Thanks to Pine's help, Hermine and Ebi had been able to liberate a small number of Ormex from servitude throughout the former Almarian Empire. Once the numbers became significant, Hermine approached Ebbie about a more permanent home where they could settle. Fortunately, Ebbie knew just the place. After a time, the Ormex that regained their full faculties began digging into the issues with the crystal engine and why it failed, and what the next steps should be in repairing and stabilizing the world. Through this, Ebbie couldn't help but feel a tremendous burden of guilt and responsibility. It was his choice that broke the engine. It was his choice that shattered the world. It was his choice that ultimately resulted in the deaths of thousands, and that essentially destroyed all the work of his predecessors. Neum had not spoken to him in so long. One thought in particular loomed heavy on Ebi's mind. If Lord Laramie was a real, tangible being imbued with immense power, then perhaps Lord Moshe similarly walks Pavantus. Perhaps Moshe may have some answers as to how to repair the world, or how to prevent the inevitable. Abby continued to wrestle with this until one day Hermine cornered him in a hallway. You're distracted, E. What's been on your mind these past few months? Abby stared into the soft green glow of her eyes and had the distinct impression that her true eyes had also been an emerald green. I apologize for not being more engaged here, more helpful to you in leading everyone. I, I just keep thinking that there's more that needs to be done out there. She nodded toward the doors which lead up and out of the shrine high above. That you feel a sense of obligation and duty to set right those things that went wrong. I know you well enough to see your heart on this matter, Arunshia. Hermine occasionally would call Abby with this this name while in private, a name in Aalil which would have roughly translated to bonded friend or truest companion. She had naturally fallen into a leadership role, and all the free peoples of Aalil looked to her for guidance. Ebby was profoundly grateful for her, for her strength and intelligence, and they had grown close. You have a calling that drives you, Arunshia, and I knew you would need to leave here one day. Just promise me this, that you'll come back to me, to us, when it's over. Ebby looked away before nodding slowly, solemnly, and then made his way for the doors. Hey, on your feet, lazy one. Or have you truly become a statue?" Ebby looked to his left at the origin of the sound and saw the small fox-like creature sitting in the shade, staring at him. It wasn't actually a fox. It looked more like a diminutive wolf, about the size of a cat. But it had… what was that? Wings? Ebby suddenly recalled a more recent memory. He had lost track of time and had been stumbling about in the frozen north for weeks. Perhaps months even. Rumors told of trees walking about in the north, and strange oasis-like groves that would appear only to be lost to travelers days later. Ebi knew that these must be pointing towards the lord of nature, so he followed, and he wandered, drifting like a leaf tossed in the wind, until he lost track of time. Eventually feelings of hopelessness and longing for the Kilava, for Hermine, took their toll. He felt his resolve slip, His will faltered, and as he fell to his knees overcome with exhaustion, his vision dimmed and then went dark. When he came to, he was surrounded by an eerie, iridescent glow, an ethereal light that emanated from the surrounding trees, even from Ebi himself. Then he saw him, a large tree that stooped forward and then walked directly towards him. Loping through the woods just behind the tree, the Lord of Nature, was a giant wolf, a beast that dwarfed any horse or dire wolf Ebby had ever seen. It peered at Ebby with amber-hued eyes. From the outskirts of the glade, stretched its wings and watched over its lord hungrily. The treant drew closer and bent forward unnaturally, reaching out a gnarled, bark-covered hand and gently touched Ebby's chest. Immediately, Ebby's mind erupted with thoughts feelings, visions, sounds, a vast rushing consciousness that crashed through his psyche like a waterfall, saturating him to the point of breaking. He thought he would burst. He thought he would be consumed, immolated by an endless stream of life sparks that ran through his being. How long this lasted, Ebby had no idea, but when he came to, he was laying here. You've slept in too long. We need to be on the move. Ebby stared at the diminutive wolf, a perfect duplicate of the majestic giant beast from his vision, but smaller than a single claw from that giant demigod that accompanied Lord Moshe. I slept? Ebby asked incredulously. I'll say. I've been watching you for months now. It's a good thing you're made of metal. Few other mortals could have survived this long without food or water. Artarian would have taken you for nourishment long ago. Ebby stared at the creature and immediately knew its name, Amarok, a harbinger demigod of the lord of nature. You're smaller, Amarok. Why change your appearance? Ebby asked. Because if I appeared in my full glory, it would drive you mad, set the forest on fire, and further break this pathetic place you call a world. We definitely do not need to attract that kind of attention. Yet. Ebby considered this for a moment. He knew intuitively why Amarok, or at least his aspect, was here to help. The angel, Ebi whispered under his breath. Correct, replied Amarok. We have work to do to understand what lays in store, and to see how we can keep this plane from shattering further, threatening the entire balance of Doman. Ebi knew at least a portion of what the Lord of Nature intended. Moshe was more of a force, a superorganism composed of the collective life force of this world and the danger had not passed. In fact, as the danger grows, like an animal cornered, Moshe is likely to become more wild and erratic. Selecting Ebi as his avatar and sending Amarok were necessary steps in case he lost control. While the crystal engine was indeed a cancer that needed to be dealt with, there is yet a darkness festering within Pavantus that would need to be dealt with as well. Ebi stood up and looked at his moss and lichen-covered body Plants had begun growing out between the seams in his body. Little flowers, a few leaves, a few spidery roots. Come, Amarok. It is indeed time. Amarok seemed to smile and then leaped or flew up onto his shoulder. Onward, Aralt Kumosha. Let us face
0: our doom. Bravo. That was great. That was awesome. So good. Very cool. Very cool. All right, Matt, Sabrina, and uh, Scott, go ahead and roll initiative. I rolled a
3: five. Ugh. I rolled a one.
1: Oh, oh my god, you guys! I rolled a seven. How am I? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, doing this.
3: I'm really glad we're not fighting with
2: these numbers,
0: guys. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> so what's the order then? Nari, Pine, Roose. Yeah. All right. Well, Nari, how does your year three go?
1: Yeah, so end of year two, beginning of year three, after Narya's has kind of established the semblance of a organization Arc-O-V V, is doing the research and trying to find out anything they can about this cult of inevit- or about inevitability and the angel. Um, she heads over to Tabury in an attempt to find Ember and also gain more contacts. Um She does not find Ember, but she does, you know, find Kira and Roos. And she stays on the castle to kind of help out and do what she can with her her informants. And she kind of, or not kind of, she begins a relationship with Kira uh, romantically as well. um, And just kind of sticks around for the next year, just hanging out, doing what she can to help the city. Mm. About
0: to wow, wow. sitting
2: in a tree. <laughs> nice. I'm picturing the size difference, and it's adorable. That's
0: fantastic. <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> awesome. All right, well very cool. Pine, what are you doing in year three? uh So year three, you mentioned that uh, the theocracy of men arrest has been somewhat reestablished. So Pine, being actually not too far from there, um you know, much closer than if he was in Tabury, Um he actually decides to to go check it out after having spent the year with with Leon and his family, so he will head to um to Menarest, Menarest to the capital of Colinium, and there he's kind of observing how this new country is um, reestablishing itself um, after a little after observing for maybe a few months um, He'll, he he kind of comes forward, um, as a former, you know, military leader, somebody in their history books, right. Um, to try to help with that reestablishing, to be a voice of, you know, this is, this is how things functioned in the past and, um, to kind of help them reestablish, uh, the theocracy of Menarest. So, um, it was a theocracy because, and actually, and I don't know if we've gone into this too much, but in Menarest, they worship three, do, three domains, lords and ladies. The domains of nature, life, um, um, knowledge, cadriel, um, and then also law, justice. Um, and so typically, their, their country was kind of ruled by a repre- like two representatives from each. So one representing the lord, one representing the lady. And so it was a council of six and what he found is rather than reestablishing this country as a council of six it's really in name only a theocracy and there's one one uh one that represents one of the uh the one of the deities of justice that has really um overpowered the rest and there's this cult of personality that's forming around this very strong leader um and Pine uh, tries to be a voice for moderation, um, but he gets drowned out. And so he actually kind of gets back to his his, his old ways of um, being um, an opposing voice in public, which ultimately gets him into trouble. He becomes a dissident, and he ends up becoming uh, fearing for his life. Um, and he basically becomes an exile of Menarest by the end of the year. A rabble rouser through and through. Um, I think probably part of the reason, another re- reason why maybe um, Pine was not super successful. Um, and, and you can stop me if, if you don't like this idea, but um, there's still people who remember, you know, this is now what, like uh, 18 years uh, after the fall of Menorest to the empire. There's still people who remember the sacking of Redleaf. And That's true. there's still people who, who pin that on pine. I would imagine that might have something to do with the fact that maybe he wasn't as successful um, as he could have been there in the country. Yeah. I, I think that's, that's also part of it. Yeah. And then that's, that's definitely one of the attacks that gets leveled against him by his political opponents. Um, and I was, I will say this as well, that the, that leader, that charismatic leader with the cult of personality forming around, around him. Um, it's not anybody that we've met so far. that's men So it's not, it's not Richter. Um, and it's not tiny. (laughs) It's not Um, Whoa, Um, I gotta start rewriting notes. I'll, I'll leave it to, I'll leave it to Paul to come up with a name for this, for this person. Yeah. Um, but, uh, it's somebody who's, who's stepped up and has kind of used the chaos to their advantage to, to gain power. Very cool. Very cool. Awesome. Yeah. He'll become important if you guys make him important. So very cool.
3: All right. And then we have Roos. What are you doing in year three? Year three, um, it, it's m- m- a lot of the same as year two for Roos, with one exception. There is a major event that happens, and rumors spread about the city, ab- about something that happened during a duel with Roos. I didn't mention it before, but at the end of the last episode, Roos picked up two of the swords that Lord Laramie dropped on the floor and he has grown very attached to them. They have more than just a magical bond that you would make with a regular item. These swords have reshaped themselves to be more suited to him in ways that typical magical items wouldn't. And he is never seen without these swords at his hips. He for a long time never used them but in the third year he was challenged to a duel a friendly duel not one that should have ended in bloodshed but during the fight he loses control of himself a little bit and he ends up killing the man that he was sparring against and he knows that it was because of these swords that he killed this person. This event struck him and made him rethink just about everything about himself all over again. And he and Kira worked towards getting him cured of this curse that made it so that he cannot use any weapon other than these weapons. And they got to the point they were ready to to cure him of it and he decided to keep them and he Never told Kira why.
0: As year four P.S. dawns, trade slowly begins between the new nations. With so many coastlines devastated by the shattering, a new concerted effort to rebuild seaports takes hold amongst the inhabitants of Pavantis. Ships that were started the previous year are finished, and shipwrights become more and more efficient in their trade. Things begin to settle, although skirmishes and battles are still common amongst the various nations, cities, and kingdoms. In the middle of the month Mooten Fantasy May, the nation of Dolene officially splits into two, partially because of the sea that now separates both halves of the country, and partially because the twin heirs of the throne both claim to be its rightful ruler. Trade continues to increase, as does the growth of a new religion, their creed, They believe that the sinking of the continent is a precursor to the end of Pavantis. In late summer, in the month of Scrantel, Fantasy September, the colossal statue of Iramil in the bay just north of the city of Almar does something no one expects. It rises up out of the water as a tall tower pushes up from underneath, finally settling at a height of several hundred feet in the air. After the initial shock of this unforeseen occurrence, people go out to investigate but the statue and tower both appear solid. There are no windows or doorways. Strangely, at night, the eyes of the statue glow a deep, dark orange. Though in the daylight, the eyes appear to be made of the same stone as the rest of the statue. All throughout this time, the deacons are continually used for labor and menial tasks, as well as guard duty by those wealthy enough to afford one. All throughout year four PS, a sense of dread has been growing, a feeling that started soon after the shattering, but now has become more palpable. Rumors of horrors in the night, monsters in the wilds, and unnamed terrors around the corner proliferate more and more in every nation and kingdom. Many of the rumors are similar to others from different kingdoms, leading some to believe they are nothing but fanciful fears. But disappearances have also become more common. A sense of fear lies right on the edge of perception in the minds of many of the world's inhabitants.
3: Wind blew across the parapet, tossling Rus's hair that he now keeps in a long ponytail. Walking at Kira's slow pace, the two stared out at the rebuilt city of Tabury below them. Nervously, Rus handed his sister a leather-bound book. His eyes lingered on the muds of his childhood from more than one lifetime ago. It's the story, as far as I can recollect, of the events that destroyed Pavantus. I've changed all our names, but the truth the history needs to live on somehow, Roos said as he turned to face the setting sun over the mountains to the west. Kira followed Roos' gaze to the sun and brought up her concerns for the third time. I still don't understand why you're leaving. We've rebuilt the city. We're working with the fallen rose. I've already told you why I have to leave. Kira's eyes lingered on the twin black scimitars at Roos' side. You could see a priest of Erdos and remove the curse. I know, but I need a reminder of everything that happened. We didn't fix anything. We didn't even delay it. The four of us set inevitability loose on Pavantus. You take the throne, create a peaceful home for our people, expand it into a nation if you want, but I don't want anything to do with it. How can you abandon all that we've done? Kira motioned out to the city below them in the farmland in the distance. The foreign landscape of their homeland urged Rus to action. The valley south of the city led off to the new and en- enlarged Sapphire Sea. Pavantas could end today or tomorrow or next week. I need to put some things in order. And then I'm searching for Lady Jaffa. I have questions for her. I don't get your fascination with Jaffa. She's one of the only lords and ladies that doesn't have an established following. I know. I'm taking feathers and traveling to Barrister. I want to see if it's still there. And I want to know if Farron survived. If Howling Talon still exists. And if Farron did survive, I want to know where he went. The brother and sister embraced as the early evening wind picked up. Even the direction of the air currents felt wrong as they came off from the Sapphire Sea instead of down the mountains. Footsteps called their attention away from the moment. Bruce turned to leave as a tall, muscular woman joined them on the parapet. You take care of her while I'm gone. (laughs) Not that I was any good at it while I've been here. I set the bar pretty low. Who, who who is
0: Cute. that muscular woman? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, tell us more about her. I know, right? right she sounds fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So then uh so then Roos leaves and goes to Barrister on Feathers. I'm glad Feathers is still around. Yes. Feathers McGraw. <laughs> <laughs> You're peekaboo. Yep. Bork Bork. Oh, that's great. <laughs> bork Bork. <laughs> All right. Very good. Okay. Ebi, what's Ebby doing during year four? Um, So Ebi
2: started making his way south, back down the Wolfjaw Mountains from way up in the tundras of Ladrathel, where he was. And um, through the early part of year four, made his way back down the mountains to Valkanar, where he tried to do a little bit of snooping. Um, some of his new found abilities uh, that he gained from Lord Moshe allows him to hide a little bit more easily amongst people. And so he, while there aren't very many people that worship the angel in Valcanar, some of the traders and caravanners that came from down in the old Almarian fallen empire did. And he started to hear about strange things happening down that way. So he made his way down the glass mountains as quickly as he could to get to Almar. Um, he kind of began to do some some kind of lone wolf clandestine operations, trying to spy and figure out what was happening and even got close to feeling like there was a major event that was about to take place. Uh, he showed up at the location, but apparently was too late. There was nobody there. And later that day, the statue of the angel rose out of the water. Um, and so he knew he's, he was close, but basically that's how he spends the rest of year four is just continuing to do clandestine operations in Almar and throughout the Almarian province as best he can. Uh, occasionally, he'll liberate some Ormex and send them along up north as well to go meet up with the others. Nice.
0: Yeah, the Almarian, Almarian province now called uh, the city-states of Rakolia yes very cool awesome (laughs)
3: exactly
0: (laughs) (laughs) why you gotta ruin everything matt (laughs) all right what's pine doing here in year four as things continue to move along pine is exhausted um you know he had some he had plenty of gold for a normal person's life um from his adventures. Uh so he's been living off of that. He actually left a fairly large sum with uh with Leon and his family. Leon wouldn't accept anything, so he kind of hid it in the house before he left. Um but so having failed in Menarest to actually affect any change Pine's ready to retire. He's This is his 75th year. So he's old and he's tired. And so he makes his way back to Tabry with every intent of, of resting. Um, planning to spend the rest of his days living in the keggery. Uh, and uh, it lasts about a week before he gets restless again. <laughs> <laughs> um, finds out that, you know, Rus has recently left, abdicated the throne to his sister. So Pine seeks her out. Um, and he actually uh, spends that year kind of as a counselor to the queen, to Queen Kira. And hanging out with Nari, too. Any chance they could get. Probably doing some sparring and stuff.
1: Hell yeah. With a 75-year-old.
3: <laughs> 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 yes. Yes. Perfect. Those septuagenarians, right. they're spry. Well, this one is. And Nari.
1: It's more than a rumor," Nari snapped, rubbing the bridge of her nose between her finger and thumb. Informants from Menares to Arkovy have been reporting all kinds of strange events: monsters, disappearances, hell, a whole tower rose out of the Almerian Sea. Nari breathed in, steadying her voice. "I know you can feel it too, Kira. The dread. Something's coming." And we can't help Tabori if all of Pavantis is destroyed. Kira shifted her glance from the treatise she was pretending to study and looked at Nari. All of Pavantis was destroyed. And now we're rebuilding from the ashes. Neither woman was overly affectionate at the best of times. But the cold look Kira gave her made Nari miss the warmth of the mountains. I rule Tabori, not Pavantis. I will not let my people suffer while I'm out chasing stories. She held up her hand as Nari drew a breath. Fine, not stories, truths. Regardless, I cannot shift my efforts to the nebulous problems of Pavantis. Tabury is stable right now, but she hangs on a knife's edge. Nari sighed. She knew Kira was right. Pavantis was in shambles because of her. It wasn't fair or right to expect Kira to take on the burden of healing an entire continent. Hell, Kira was doing more for the people of Pavantis than anyone. Taybury was strong and healthy. The people were happy, all things considered. Curse, Roos, for leaving, Nari muttered. Kira laughed, the corners of her mouth turning the scars on her face into a smile. Now that's something we can agree on. The couple sat in silence. I suppose I'll have to go on my own then. There is something happening out there, and I need to to figure out what it is. I'll take the next boat to Almar and begin there. For a split second, Nari thought she saw Kira's eyes glisten. But in a blink, the tears were gone, replaced by an emotionless mask, the face of a queen. Do what you must, Kira whispered. Hearing the finality of those words, Nari turned to leave. Shutting the heavy wooden door, she heard a soft cry. Or perhaps that was her own projection. Mimicking Kira, Nari dried the tears in her eyes, turned, and left.
0: Oh, that breaks my heart.
1: Yeah, it was really sad.
0: Yeah. Oh, I don't know if you applaud that. Sorry. <laughs> 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 Delete, delete that one out. I'll add in the honking sound of people blowing their noses (laughs) and the, and the sound of gentle squishing of tissues around eyes to dab tears. Yes. That was, that that was really sweet though. By year five, P.S., there's a feeling of order and control again through much of Pavantis. Sadly, by now the numbers are in, and the consensus is that an estimated 50 to 60% of the world's population did not survive the shattering, and many more died in the unease and tumult which followed. A growing hope takes hold amongst many peoples that maybe the shattering was as bad as things were going to get. Of the few who knew of the inevitability dogma, many of them believe that the shattering itself was the inevitable, and that it is now past. There is a wary relaxation as the world seems to settle, but elsewhere in Pavantis, in hiding places and secret meetings, the new religious group that believes that the end of the world is on the verge begins to grow. They take the angel Iramiel as their symbol, even though they continue to operate in secrecy. The people of Pavantus know that this cult exists, but no one knows who around them may be a follower. Though there has been no outright violence or attacks from the cult, many believe that they are responsible for numerous disappearances all around Pavantus. Year 5, PS, post-shattering, closes with an unsteady calm as most of the world's inhabitants breathe a collective sigh of relief that the worst is now behind them. Okay, let's all roll initiative for
3: year five. Woo! I got an 18. Ooh, there we go. This is my highest roll of the night. I got a 14. I got a 10. And Abby got a three. Pine, go ahead and go first.
0: All right. So um in year five, um, maybe it's the constantly, you know, singing It's my party under his breath while he's walking around the <laughs> castle. Um <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Kira <laughs> decides that Pine would be the right person to help strengthen ties with um Arkelvy in the East, um the the what the kingdom of Arkelvi. Um yes. so she actually sends him as a delegate or an ambassador to Arkelvi to help strengthen ties with Tabri. So he um he travels there, and while he's there, um, they actually spend a lot of time studying at that uh, the hidden libraries of Cadriel. Not just the one we found before, but um, maybe he finds another one or two of them that are in the city, uh, and he studies there as well. Again, um, spending his downtime uh, looking for anything to do with Eremiel or specifically the history of why the crystal engine was chosen as opposed to any other options to see what my, some other options might have been that Ebby's people um, in, in the past opted not to to follow and instead chose the crystal engine as the solution to put all their, you know, all the eggs in that one basket. Um, so he'll spend some time doing that. I think that, and, and tell me if I'm wrong here, Paul, I think that, the ambassador from Tabri to Arklevy doesn't, he doesn't actually get a lot of face time or time to do any um, really productive negotiation with anybody in power there because um, it's almost seen like in Arklevy, Tabri's almost seen like an usurpation of power. That's exactly right. That's exactly okay. right. So Pine is put up in Eberly Manor um, where delegates get to stay, but. Yeah, no time in Mason's Keep with the king. Okay. Awesome. Well, Roos, what
3: what are you doing in year five? Year five, Roos has finished his travels, found out as much or as little as he could while out and about, and he has returned to Arkelvie. And while at Arkelvie, one of the first things he does is he goes back to the library of Cadriel to return his library book. (laughs) (laughs) You guys are such good citizens. (laughs) (laughs) With one, with one addition, um, Roos wrote his name as the last, um, person in the family, in the Biard royal lineage. He added a footnote, um, about himself in the book. And, um, in the book, also he, um, in this footnote that he that he wrote about himself, he cited the book by Colbury um, about the events of Disc One. Um, for those looking to know more about the last man in the Beard family uh, royal line, and he gives that book back to their what, what was that guy's name? It's been. For uh, it Humber. was Librarian Horton, yes. Horton, that's right. Yes. So, he gives the book back to Librarian Horton and Horton had, um, this was a book that Horton himself had written and so, Roos um, has some long conversations with Horton about that. But while he's there in the library, he's searching for some other things. He's trying to find out as much as he can about inevitability. The question that's on his mind that keeps driving him back to the library is if it's truly inevitable, why should they try and stop it? But if it could have been stopped and if it was stopped in the past, is it truly inevitable? And that's what he's wrestling with. And that's what he's trying to find information about Jaffa and where she stood. Because as, as Abby had said earlier, the lords and ladies are real, and they have, they have become real to Joff in a way that he never, he never really thought that they were tangible before. So now he's even more dedicated to finding out what he can about where Jaffa stood with the inevitability debate between the lords and ladies. But while he's there at the library studying on one occasion, he runs into an old friend, Mr. Pine. Yeah! And one thing I, uh, while Joff was on the road, one day out in the middle of, you know, his travels he found the perfect skipping stone and he kept it (laughs) he put it in his pocket and he traveled with it for the off chance that he might run into his old friend again. And that that is also one of the changes that's happened in these five years, is he considers the rest of the party friends um it took him a bit to warm up to them and granted it it was a year for us in real time but it was uh it was only two months in game time and so it took him a, about two months to really feel close to to the rest of the group i like to think that uh when uh when
0: Roose presented that skipping rock that was a perfect opportunity for them to catch up, and so Pine would have probably suggested something similar that he did with his with his granddaughter, go sit on the dock on Deep Lake, um, and basically, uh, Roos, tell me your story, tell me the story of your journeys, and then, then Pine would skip the rock, so it could be a shared memory as opposed to just one that Roos has on his own. Awesome, nice. I like it. I also like to think that they would get together in the park and play like bocce.
1: Yes.
3: Uh, oh, totally. Yes. At least twice a week. That's
1: fantastic. fantastic. you. a bingo night. Yeah.
3: Yes. Oh, yes. that's great. Awesome. It, it didn't come up in the episode. I never told the rest of the group. So, one of the things that uh, Roos would have told uh, Mr. Pine while they're catching up and, and perhaps even studying in the library together um, was that he recognized Iramil as uh, Ramsey. And he um, immediately made the connection of the missing arm and, um, you know, just related that revelation to Pine about Ramsey. Awesome. Very cool.
0: Uh, Nari.
1: Yeah, so Nari spent most of the fifth year traveling, kind of just trying to gain information and gain more informants in different cities and ended back up in Arcov. And she does have informants in the library of Cadriel, So she heard that there was an old man sent to talk to the king from Tabury and a haughty young man with a ponytail hanging around.
0: (laughs) (laughs) With terrible fashion sense. With terrible fashion sense sense and a weird
1: mustache. (laughs)
0: <laughs> and they were challenging all comers to bocce in the park yes <laughs> and just destroying yes. them with their awesome dexterity so, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah so i
1: think Nari, Nari will you know return to our share her knowledge with um nila and the you know the fallen rose there but then we'll also be super happy to see pine and ruse and we'll basically share all of the information she has gathered in the last few years as well.
0: Nice. Yeah. I think that's Very mutual cool. on all of our parts. Yeah. 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 Um, one thing that you guys all realize as you guys are kind of, I think all three of you have spent some time at the library. Um, you realize that there is a new librarian there, uh, a librarian who goes by the name brother librarian Colbury. Oh and, rad! Uh, <laughs> <Dombry> has uh, <laughs> has decided to actually become a librarian of Cadriel. He always respected Cadriel, and now that um, he feels like this is the, I you get the impression he got his taste of adventure, and he is done with that part of his life. He feels like maybe staying at the library and doing research is uh, going to be a little bit uh maybe better serve the world that way. Yeah, so I think we'll we'll spend that year together, and and by the time you know the year is over. Pine's uh, stint as a as a ambassador is over, so he'll be heading back to Tabury. And I think I think the rest of you, the other two you guys wanted to come too, right? Yeah, yeah. Nari
1: has uh, some things in Tabury she'd like to do.
3: <laughs> yeah, Roos, <Ruse>, one <laughs> oh, thing <yeah>. in particular.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> nice. So during year five, you know, Ebby has continued to operate as kind of a lo- lone wolf spy more or less down in uh, Recolia in the old city of Almar um trying to find everything that he can or learn everything that he can and there are times when it gets pretty dicey he's had a few altercations and run-ins with different groups um specifically not any kind of soldier or guard group nothing like a formal group but whatever whatever groups are operating in the underground he's butted heads with them a couple times um, all while trying to find whatever information he can on the angel or the cult of the angel Um, he's liberated a few Ormex but something changed in the uh, during the year Um, he noticed that he was getting there were a lot more close calls happening it was as though they knew where he was going to be and, or they were setting traps for him. And so as the year starts to draw closer to the fall, um, Abby gets the strong sense that not only are they aware of him, but they are out actively to try to get him, to try to you know, kill him or subdue him. Um, and so he realizes that the task ahead of him is beyond his abilities, and that he's going to need help um, figuring out what's going on with the cult of, of the angel, what's going on with, you know, inevitability. So he heads back towards Tabury, um, with the thought of going there to see if he can figure out where his friends are. So he is back on the road, heading to Tabury with the goal of, by the end of year five, being back at Tabury.
0: Ebby, so while you were there and you were investigating, um, kind of Almar, did you ever, do you think Uh, that Ebi ever went and investigated that tower and the, and the statue that other people had investigated? Uh,
2: Yeah, I would think he, he definitely would probably late at night when nobody was watching, he would
0: try to get as close as he could to see if he could investigate it. Oh yeah. I mean, and, and you notice the same things. It seems solid and yet you look up at the eyes of this statue and they glow this deep orange glow Uh, no windows, no doors, no way in. And as you kind of look at the tower, you can see that it stretches all the way down to the, uh, to the sea floor. And it's just kind of this straight cylinder. Um, But yeah, that's quite odd. Um, But that's as much information as you can get as you all for travel and we'll say arrive in Tabury. But for now, a soft breeze blows the cool early spring air from the bay into the city of Elmar. This great city, former capital of the largest nation to ever grace Pavantus, still retains much of its former glory. Ornate columns support open-air buildings and markets, temples to various lords and ladies line the street of the pious path, and new banners fly over the now empty imperial palace. Almar, that great city, once the seat of an empire, now the Republic of Rocolia's capital, and always a shining star for the rest of Avantis to look toward. Off in the bay, a half a mile from shore, the tower stands. Though quite broad, it appears thin when compared to its vast height. Standing proudly atop the tower is the image of Iramil, the angel of unity, or inevitability, messenger and murderer, its eyes the lifeless color of stone, where at night they shine bright with an orange fiery glow. The residents of Almar avert their eyes from the statue more and more these days, its presence a reminder both of lost glory of the past and a mysterious supernatural potential yet to come. It is now at this time in the early afternoon that the eyes begin to glow. Few people notice at first, their gaze having strayed away from the tower in the bay, but within a handful of minutes, the gossip begins to spread like wildfire throughout the city. The eyes are glowing before dusk. What could this mean? An omen, but for good or ill. The mood of this beautiful city changes from one of suppressed anxiety to open fear and panic. Deep in a cell far below the city, an iron-bound door muffles the laughter of the occupant within. At a small table outside the room, a young scribe awakens from his dozing. The laughter, he has been told, is often a prelude to crying. And, after the crying... The scribe grabs a quill, gets his ledger open, and readies himself to write just as the terrible, racking sobs begin from behind the solid door. This is it, thinks the scribe. A prophecy. The sobs die down and, in a choked voice, the pitiful man within the cell begins. The angel sees, though not at night, but now at day his eyes are light. What was to be is now again. Havantas soon shall see her end. An end, the end, its power grown. The open door by Angel shone even now the five of ermiel loom they come to usher in our doom at that the voice stops speaking breaks down into sobs that gradually turn back into laughter the scribe finishes his notes dries the ink with a few quick breaths and rushes out of the room to share the mad oracle's message with his superiors at that very moment out in the bay the waters begin to roil a small fishing boat is pulled slowly backward the oars are useless as the boat begins to move faster and faster backwards a whirlpool forms in the water and the fishing boat is caught up in it now spiraling around and around picking up speed faster and faster off in the distance further out in the bay another whirlpool forms spinning faster and faster The residents of Almar watch this phenomena with fear and trepidation. They are so caught up gazing out across the bay that only a handful notice the spiraling cyclone reaching down from the clouds in the sky to touch the ground on the far side of the city. Off in the fields to the south. Another, further west, tears through a small grove of fruit trees as it touches down, while a third creates a waterspout to the east of the city where land meets bay. For several minutes, five spiraling vortices surround the city of Almar, that shining star to the world. Then as suddenly as they formed, they disperse. And as the waters of the bay become calm once more, the eyes in the statue of Iramil go out for the final time. Several vessels are now on the water, speeding to aid the survivors of the fishing boat that capsized minutes earlier. The ripped up earth from the cyclones settles as dust drifts down and covers the grass. The residents of Almar huddle in fear, waiting for something more. But as with human nature, the longer they wait, the easier it becomes to discount what they saw. Crazy, some call it. Strange magics, say others. And then they do what humanity has done for eons. They move on with their lives and get back to normal. But there are some who watch this supernatural spectacle and swear they see something more than everyone else. There in the whirlpool, or over there in the cyclone, don't you see it? From five spiraling points of power, five figures, winged and powerful, arrive in Pavantus. Soon they vanish from sight, heading in different directions. Though different in form, they are singular in purpose, to usher in the inevitable. All right, everybody. Hey, thanks for hanging out with us tonight. That was amazing. Uh, This was a great session. Wow, that was awesome. We actually, so in our first whole 51 episodes, we covered two months of time. And in one episode, we covered five years. A lot has happened. That was great. I love it. Uh, Next time we get together, we will be in Tabry together as a party after five long years. I can't wait to see what happens. And I hope you guys are as excited as I am. Oh yeah! I think the, the the fact that there is a disc one, and we use the crystal disc, there's probably a second one.
1: Oh dang! Oh, <laughs> there you <pieces> go. Together.
0: <laughs> I'm scratching out notes right now. <laughs> it's too early for you to figure all this stuff out. No, I'm just kidding. All right, if you like what we're doing, go leave us a rating and review. Go um, tell a friend. Tell a family member check out our Patreon. We got some awesome content. And now as we move into this next disc, there will be a whole nother section of disc two where you get to see what Shattered Pavantus looks like. Anyway, go check those things out. And until we see you next time, I hope you have a great time.